All right. Second Timothy chapter four. We're going to finish it up tonight. We've been in this series, Loyal in Faith. And you know what I realized we never really did? We never even really looked at the definition of loyal. I'm kind of a definition nerd. I have like Merriam-Webster as a bookmark in my phone. I love, look, sometimes the world gets definitions wrong. Sometimes they're, they're okay. You know, and so we never even really defined loyal, though we've been taking a look at kind of a biblical picture of it as, as Paul exhorts Timothy to be loyal in the faith. But um, how many of you is your first time here for the series? A couple? Okay, all right. People keep showing up and then never come back apparently. That's great. So... So, uh, loyal in the faith, let me pray real fast and then we'll get going and then my time will start. Sounds good. So, Jesus, we just ask uh, that you be glorified. We ask that um, the teaching and the preaching of your word um, would lift you up, that it would not lift me up, that it would not lift um, any name above yours. Um, Jesus, just behind, lift it up. This is for your name. This is for your fame. Um, but I pray that it's just not your fame here, but it's your fame throughout our community. It's in our hearts. It's with our family. It's with our friends. It's that we're encouraged and in, empowered to move out um, and, and infect the world. Jesus, as you came into the world to in, infect the world um, with restoration, with the gospel, with the preaching of repentance, with the preaching of the gospel. And so we just, Jesus, we just pray that, that your ministry would continue with us, that, that you would encourage your church tonight, that you would excite your church tonight, that you would set your church on mission, set them on fire, Holy Spirit, with your power so that we could move out and, and take our faith beyond the walls of this building, um, a faith into the community. And Jesus, as you took faith into the community, into the culture. And so just pray for that anointing. I, Holy Spirit, ask for you, the ability to teach. Um, ask for those that are here for the ability to learn from you, not from me. May everything I say be discarded and everything from you be embedded in our hearts. So Jesus, behind, lifted up. In your name we pray. Amen. Loyal. Giving or showing firm and constant support or allegiance to something. Giving or showing firm. It doesn't say like sort of wish-washy, right? Giving or showing firm, constant, not flaky, constant support or allegiance to something. And we have loyalty to a lot of things in life, yes? We do, think about it. You're loyal to a lot of things. Some of those things are good to be loyal to. Some of those things are maybe kind of in the middle. It just depends on how you're loyal and the manner in which you're loyal. Some of them are bad to be loyal to. Think about family, being loyal to family. Most people are loyal to family, right? And I pray you come from a good family where there's loyalty and the hearts are knit together and you guys are a strong unit. But there's loyalty, right? I remember in, in, I don't know, elementary, maybe junior high, there was a kid that said something about my mom. And it was just, it was throwdown in the middle of class, right? Like, and that's maybe not the right response, but it was like, I'm loyal to my family. You can't just talk about my mom. I was in like sixth grade or something, almost gave the poor kid a concussion. And so like, and then he got kicked out. It was epic. I ran to the principal's office and cried. Ah, you did this. And then he got kicked out. It was hilarious. Um, don't do that. But... <laughs> He was leaning back in his chair, and I stood up behind him in class. Teacher's like, what are you doing? I said, say one more thing about my mother. And he did, so I grabbed his shoulders, and I pulled him down like that, and he went down and hit his head. Anyway, so check this out. Loyalty to family. It's something that very early on, we're loyal to our family, aren't we? Guys know this. You don't talk about mom, right? How many of you had to defend siblings? Loyal to them, right? Maybe you went to school. You're loyal to them. You constantly show firm and constant support for them, Okay? What about friends? Loyalty to friends, right? Or else they're not like really your friends. If you're not loyal to them, they're just acquaintances, right? Friends, are you there for them? Showing constant support, firm support, allegiance to your friends, <clears throat> business, work. Look, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a soldier when it comes to my business. Not my business, the business that I work for. I'm a soldier, right? Defend that place of work, defend that business, what we're doing, the vision we're under, where we're going. <clears throat> I am in complete loyalty to my business. Work, we're loyal to that. You show up, right? You're showing constant support. I hope you're showing support for your work, right? Politics. Some of us are super loyal to our politics, and that's great. <clears throat> super loyal. But you defend it. You're constantly telling people about your politics, you're constantly telling them everything the president is doing wrong. And then when your president gets elected, you're constantly defending 
that the president is doing everything right, right? The country was great for eight years, now it's terrible for eight years, and then maybe it'll be great for four years, and back and forth, because we're constantly showing firm support to our politics. What about our hobbies, right? How many of you have hobbies? I do, don't be ashamed, you should see my garage. It's just, we call it the hobby shack, okay? Hobby shack, scuba gear, surf gear, snowboarding gear, motorcycles, softball, allegiance to that stuff, right? Showing support. Give my money, give my time, give my treasure, give my talents to it. And I'm not that talented at my hobbies, but I try, right? We constantly show this sort of firm support. I'm a surfer. I'm a motorcycle guy. I'm, a, I'm an artist. I'm a musician. You're constantly building up and supporting your hobbies. We're loyal. Could you say the same for your faith, though? When people bring up your name, is that the first thing? That guy's talking about, he, he, look, his life, I don't necessarily really get it, but his life is just wrapped around Jesus. It's wrapped around serving the church and the community. That guy's clearly loyal, first and foremost, to one thing. Doesn't mean he can't have politics, doesn't mean he can't have hobbies, doesn't mean he can't have family, friends, school, work. But would that be the first thing that comes up? And not in like an annoying way, like you go around badgering people. But is that just the mark? People are like, that guy, if nothing else... That gal, if nothing else, is loyal to Jesus. Loyal to Jesus. They take every thought captive, as the Bible says, every thought captive to Christ. They're constantly meditating on it, constantly reflecting on it. To be loyal in faith. And so we're loyal in many things. And one of the, th- one of the themes of this book has been remaining loyal, as Paul has been writing to Timothy. And so quick backdrop If you remember in chapter one, Paul, who was originally a guy by the name of Saul, this guy was, and this blows a lot of people away, because a lot of times in the Bible, we get our timelines kind of messed up. We kind of just kind of assume everything maybe kind of happened at the same time, everyone was around each other. Paul never met Jesus on earth. Paul wasn't even born when Jesus ascended. Okay? Years after Jesus ascended, Paul was born. But that wasn't his name at birth, it was Saul. And he grew up a Jew, he grew up an Israelite, and the guy was wicked smart. Ascended very quickly, he was a top religious leader, a Pharisee. Guy likely had multiple degrees. And he was an enemy of Christianity. He was an enemy of the way. He was an enemy of the church that was booming, coming out of Acts. That was taking root in the first century. He was an absolute enemy of the faith. We know of at least one, there were probably many, stonings. Paul was there for the stoning of the very first Christian martyr, Stephen. It says that they laid all their garments at the feet of Paul, and as a Pharisee, he had every right to say, carry on. You now have the religious blessing over this execution of Stephen. And very likely, they buried Stephen about halfway to a pole, we're not talking little rocks. We're talking softball-sized rocks. And they would get a running start. And they would throw them. And Paul stood there with the garments of all the executioners, and he blessed it. And Stephen was murdered in front of his eyes, and he was delighted with it. And then as he traveled, he asked for the rights. As he traveled, he said, look, if I even come across these Christians, these Bible thumpers, these Jesus freaks, if I even come across one of these guys, you got to give me the authority to drag them out of their house. Men, women, children, put them in prison. Absolutely. And Saul went on and on and on. He wreaked havoc on the church, the Bible says. And ultimately, Jesus had to show up and knock him senseless. And Jesus from heaven cracks open heaven as he's on the road, blinds him, blinds him. He says, Saul... Why are you persecuting me? And Saul has this radical conversion, radical conversion later in life, an enemy of the church, a Pharisee, an executioner, has this radical encounter with Jesus and everything changes. Everything changes. And as I've said every week, some of you have a testimony that is a radical midlife, late life, Testimony where Jesus gripped you, the gospel gripped you, and everything changed, completely turned around. Some of you identify with that, and as I've told you every week, I'll do it again this week, I don't identify with that. 
I grew up in a Christian household my whole life. I've never seen my, my dad yell at my mom. All my siblings love Jesus, praise Jesus, serve Jesus. People are like, when were, when were you saved? I don't know. I just think I've always been. I don't know. I didn't have that radical conversion. And Paul is writing to Timothy, who had this faith since he was a kid, at the very least. He just, he's just grown up in the faith. He's grown up in a loving family. He's, he's, he now he works at a church. Paul's his radical testimony. Tim is, eh, I've just always been a Christian. And by the way, we praise Jesus for both of those testimonies. We're excited about radical testimonies like Saul going to Paul. And we're excited about glorious, boring testimonies. We are. We are excited about that. And as I said, I think last week, a lot of the folks that have that radical testimony wish they had a boring one because they had to suffer through a lot of pain and turmoil first before Jesus cracked open heaven and said, knock it off. And so Paul is writing to Timothy, these two vast differently, I mean, vast difference in their faith. Paul becomes this giant. Tim, Timothy is this church administrator. Paul is going around the globe. Timothy's staying at one church. Paul is this bold defender getting persecuted and thrown in jail. Timothy just has to remember to not be ashamed of the gospel. Hey, get excited, you know? Build up some leaders. And he's being encouraged. And we saw in the first chapter that Paul exhorts him not to be ashamed of the gospel. He says, be unashamed. God has not given you a spirit of fear. Likely because Tim just had some fear. He just likely had some fear. He wasn't maybe great at evangelizing. He wasn't great talking about his friends, talking to his friends about Jesus. He was kind of a behind the scenes at church guy, like sort of, eh, I'm not, I don't want to you know, cause any waves. We'll just get the church going. We'll get people up. We'll raise elders. We'll kind of, and he, he was struggling with boldness. And Paul says, be bold. And Paul's writing this from prison, knowing that he's going to the execution block, looking out the cell window, seeing them prep the block for his head. And we're going to see in this chapter, he, he was, Paul was already gone. Paul was already in heaven when he was writing this, as you'll see. He's like, I'm already there. His heart was already there. He's in prison. Like, this is it. And so he writes to Timothy. He says, be bold. Don't have a spirit of fear. And that's one of the things that keeps us from being loyal in our faith, yes? Well, talking about, kind of, what if they, I don't know, you're kind of timid. And Paul, via the Holy Spirit, right? God authored scripture. Man just penned it. God himself says, be unashamed. Jesus created you for his glory. You're a sinner. We get that. So Jesus came to fix it. Now he's restoring you. Tell people about that because I'm coming back. And so some of you fear is what keeps you from being loyal, from showing this or giving or showing this firm and constant support or allegiance to your faith. It kind of depends on who you're talking with. How aggressive are they? How anti-Christian do they go to? It's not that there aren't different ways to talk to people. But at some point, you have to, just as you would talk to them about your hobbies, as you would talk to them about your politics, as you would talk to them about your work. You talk to people about your faith. What are some other things that keep us? Maybe a lack of knowledge. You feel like, oh, I just don't have the right things to say. I'm not schooled enough. Start with your testimony. Start with what Jesus did in your life. That's what a testimony is. What Jesus did in your life. That's it. What has Jesus done? Has he just always guided you and shepherded you from very early on? You accepted him likely at an early age? Or did he radically transform you and turn you from something more recently? So for some of you, you just think you have a lack of knowledge. Just start with your testimony, right? For some of you, it's a past. How many of you brought a past here today? Anyone bring a past? Okay, four of you have histories. Great, terrific. So all of you else were just born three seconds ago. Great. We all bring a past, don't we? I agree. Like, look, they're going to know I'm a sham. I have absolutely no right to be talking to anyone about Jesus. Look, I'm telling you, if Paul could tell people about Jesus, you can. As far as I know, no one here stood over the executions of Christians lately. If you did, talk to me afterwards. We have some things to talk about. <laughs> Paul was, he, he's the last one. He's the last one that anyone should listen to. He spent his whole life building up Judaism, building up the opposition of Christianity. He was the least likely to have a testimony that led to Jesus. Some of you have a past. Some of you have, have a, a current situation. You have a current sin. Maybe you've struggled with alcoholism and, you're, and God released you from it and so you just feel like, well, I can't really talk to anyone about, uh, they know my past. Some of you are, you're currently stooped 
in alcoholism. You're currently stooped in drug addiction. You're currently stooped in pornography. You're currently stooped in anger. You're currently stooped in gossip, tearing down other people. All these worldly things. And so maybe your past is keeping you from, from, from being loyal. Maybe your current sin. And in 2 Timothy 2, we saw that in order to be loyal, he said, be strong in the grace of God. Don't be strong in your past. Don't be strong in what you're currently doing for the church. Don't be strong in your Sunday school attendance record. Don't be strong in your family went to church. Well, be strong in grace getting what you don't deserve. And, and we took a look at, in that second week, lots of different dimensions of grace. Grace powers everything in the Christian life. In fact, I recently changed my email signature at the very bottom. It says, powered by grace. Powered by grace. It's what simply drives. It is how God gets things accomplished in the Christian life. It's through grace, giving you everything that you don't deserve. Adopting grace, predestined grace, glorifying grace, empowering grace, ministerial grace. God giving his church what we don't deserve. No one deserves it. Paul certainly didn't deserve it. Even Timothy, lifelong Christian, didn't deserve it. And so we saw to be strong in grace. And then last week we saw this widening gap. Because this is just inevitably going to happen. You're you're unashamed of the gospel. You're on mission for Jesus. You're powered by grace. And at some point you're going to realize that this is happening. Between the things of God and the things of this world. It's getting wider. I don't know if you know this, but we're not getting more godly. It's not what history will show. It's not like Jesus is up there. I don't, they're actually kind of figuring it out. Maybe they don't need me to come back. They're, let's, let's just wait and see if they get to the, you know. There's, there's, it's, it's widening. And the things of this world, as we saw, is being a lover of yourself, saying that you're the center. You're the center the world tells you, put you at the center. Be a lover of yourself. Be a lover of money. Doesn't mean that you can't make a profit. Jesus was a carpenter. I guarantee you he made more money than it cost him to operate his business so that he could eat. He made a profit. That's not the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil because it puts money above people. To be boasters. These are the things of the world. Being proud. Being blasphemers. Disobedient to parents. Unthankful. Unholy. Unloving. Unforgiving. Slanderers. Without self-control. Brutal. Despisers of good. Traitors. Headstrong. Haughty. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And, and Paul is showing Timothy there's going to be perilous times. And this was in the first century church. We're all like, I wish we could go back to then. Everything was great. Christians loved each other. They shared money, right? It's great. It was perilous then. It's perilous today. As we talked about, the last days are when? Every day since Jesus left. We're not in the tribulation. Don't read into Revelation being like, I think it's right now. If you connect the UN and the, social, the euro and the mark of the beast. We're not in the tribulation yet, okay? We're going to be in heaven when that happens, by the way. Pre-trib. That's where we're going to go, okay? Watch the whole thing from heaven. But the last day, when are the last days? Every day since Jesus left. They were in the last days in the first century. We are in the last days in 2015. He says there's going to be perilous times. Be unashamed of the gospel. Be powered by grace. But don't freak out when you realize the world is getting worse. Don't lose your mind. As I said, we should not be shocked when non-Christians don't act like Christians. We should be more concerned when Christians are not acting like Christians. And so Paul in chapter 3 exhorted them that these, to remain loyal in perilous times, regardless of legislation, regardless of what happens in your family, regardless of what happens with your friends, regardless of what happens in your business. The world is widening, getting farther from the things of God. Don't be shocked. Stop being shocked. Stop updating Facebook about how shocked you are that non-Christians are doing non-Christian things. Okay? I can't believe they did that. I can. They don't know Jesus. I'm concerned about you who do know Jesus and you're not doing anything. And so we see that widening gap. And then chapter four, he says, but you. So, so chapter three, he comes out, he says, but you. He says, but you at the end of chapter three. And then he says, I charge you at the beginning of, of chapter four. He says, look, those are the things of the world, but you, but you. And now he says, I charge you. And a lot of people take this chapter especially, and th- there is absolute translation for pastors, but you need to know it doesn't end there. When it says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. You're like, well, that's what the pastors do. 
First Peter says, we are all a royal priesthood. Hear me. Some of you abdicate the preaching responsibility of the gospel to me. Some of you do. So you're like, man, I wish my friends could, you know, come and hear Zach teach and preach the gospel. Look around. What if everyone here began preaching the gospel? Outside the walls, at work, with your friends, with your family, during your hobbies. What if suddenly all of us were preaching the gospel, preaching the word, as it says? Don't abdicate that just simply to me. Though for as pastors, that's what we're committed to doing, is preaching the Bible. By the way, the curriculum's already written. People are like, man, it must be really tough, you know, preaching. Not really. Curriculum is pre-written. It's perfect. And I can talk to the author anytime I want. It's pretty simple. But man, it must be real. How do you put all those ideas together? I don't. I open it and I read and I yell about it a little bit. Okay? Preach is not that tough. Curriculum's right there. And so he says, preach the word. But here's the thing. In order to preach the word, you have to know the word. Some people are like, no, I don't do the read the Bible thing. I'm out. Tell me what I need to know and let me move on. Right? What if I told you you had to teach someone how to change a carburetor tomorrow? What are you going to do? You can st- I know nothing about cars. I'm, I, don't, I have to first look up what a carburetor is. What's a carburetor? Some of you are like, when you say preach, the, what do you mean by word? What do you mean by gospel? You said that. What does that mean? That's a great place to start in your study this week. What does it mean by the word? Why do they call Jesus the word? Why, why is sometimes it's a capital W and sometimes it's a lowercase w? There's a Monday study for you tomorrow. Preach the word. Look, if you're going to preach the word, if I'm going to preach the word, guess what we have to do? We have to know the word. We have to know the word. Part of being loyal in faith is knowing and proclaiming the word of God. As I've said many times, it's not a cruel God that wrote the Bible. It's a cruel God that wouldn't give us the Bible. It's a cruel God that says, I'm not going to tell you anything. Just go try to figure it out. Oh, shouldn't have done that. You're screwed. Right? What if I put you on a field and said, play, play a game. What do you want to know? I want to know the parameters. Are we playing football? Are we playing rugby? What are we doing? How do we, uh, what do we, what's the goal? Whose team are we on? What do the teams look like? How do they act? How do they conduct themselves? Preach the word. You got to know the word. You got to know the word. And I always say, as people always ask me, like, where do I start? Dude, just start with the gospels. Just get to the life of Jesus. Seriously. Start there. Start in Matthew. Start Matthew. You got four gospels right there. That'll kick, that's a great study for this summer. But just read through the gospels. Preach the word, but you got to know the word. And it says, be ready in season and out of season. In season and out of season. What is not included when he says in season and out of season? What's not included? What are the times that you don't have to be ready? Nothing. Right? Some of you are like, hold on. Wait. What if it's a pseudo season? I don't know. Like, in season and out of season. Listen, when you want to and when you don't. When you want to and when you don't. When the situation presents itself, you preach the word. When you're with fellow Christians and when you're with non-Christians. When you're within the walls of the church and when you're outside the walls of the church. When you're here and when you're there. Does that cover it? Be ready in season and out of season. It says convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. And, and again, this is definitely for pastors, but it's also for the people in the pews. But, but again, what will convince will be the word of God, not your flavor necessarily. What will rebuke is the word of God, not necessarily how you position the arguments. What will exhort will be the word of God, not the ways that you've come up to build, you've come up with personally to make people feel better about themselves. It will be the word of God. With all long suffering and teaching, and this is definitely, again, this is definitely for the pastors, this is definitely for me, this is definitely for Zach, this is definitely for John, it's definitely for Brett, it's definitely for Rob, it's definitely for Tony, it's definitely for the pastors, but it's also for all of us as a royal priesthood. 
What if everyone here was ready in season and out of season? Just as you're ready in season and out of season to defend your hobbies, to defend your politics, to defend your business, to defend your school, just as you're ready to go through the points on that, are you giving or showing firm and constant support or allegiance to Jesus in your life? Is that what marks you when people bring up your name? Is that what marks you? Verse three, it says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that that's happening just left and right? You don't have to go very far. Just, you've got YouTube. You've got YouTube. Just YouTube is the Bible true. See how many pastors are trying to wiggle their way around answering that question. It, well, it's, it, it's, it's more metaphorically true. It's not literally true. It's, it's more of an experience-based. It, it depends on how you analyze. It depends on your interpretive angle. It, it is true. Look, the Bible, I'll tell you this. I'll call this uh, people say, you believe the Bible is literally true. I believe the Bible is literally true. doesn't mean every word in the Bible is literal. Is the Bible literally true? Do you believe that, Christian? Yes, the Bible is literally true. And it is literally sometimes written as a poem. When Jesus said... When Jesus says, I am a vine, there is not a Christian on the planet that thinks he's a plant. (laughs) I'm a door. There is not a single person that thinks he's an inanimate object through which you pass through. He was speaking metaphorically, but is it literally true? You better believe it. The Bible is literally true, but not every word is literal. But you're going to see the degradation of this, this ability to communicate sound doctrine. And that's, again... Zach and I, we study, and, and Pastor Brett, the pastors, look, we, we have to, we are charged with studying doctrine. And doctrine is just, and a lot of people are like, doctrine, ugh, it sounds orthodox and old. Ugh, right? Doctrine comes from the French word that means doctor. It's not tough. Doctor, doctrine. Doctrine heals. Proper doctrine, God-centered, Jesus-loving doctrine heals. And so ultimately, sermons, ultimately preaching the word to your friends and your family is a healing act, not a beating act. You don't get it. A lot of people didn't get it. The the apostles included. And so, but there will come a time when people will not endure sound doctrine. And we see this clearly Throughout culture, in America, and countries around the world, there will come a time when they will not endure sound doctrine. Again, I just tell you, Christian, don't freak out. We knew, this was, we knew this was coming for thousands of years. They will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Itching ears. We simply want to hear what we want to hear. Right? And there's a couple different ways we can explain this, but look. Let's, st- let's stick to the, the Christian perspective. Look, we've even come to a point in, in the Christian church where we want to hear about things like homosexuality, but we don't want to be challenged on gluttony. We come to a place where we want to hear about divorce. God hates divorce, but we don't want to hear that sex outside of marriage is an abomination. We even have our itching ears within the church. We've got our pet topics. Rail on them! I'm sorry, porn addiction? I didn't see that anywhere in the Bible. Let's move on. The same theology that applies to homosexuality is the exact same theology that applies to a porn addiction, that sex is between a man and a woman in the marriage covenant. Porn violates that. Homosexuality violates that. Bisexual. You can go on and on. But I'm not the homosexual. You're a porn addict you're in the exact same bucket theologically. But we don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear about gluttony. We don't want to hear about discipline, which it says yields righteousness. We want to hear about prosperity. How's God going to bless me if I do what he says? God's already blessed you regardless of what you've done. We want to hear that God's going to punish people for their sin. Because we have itching ears, and I'm, I'm here to tell you that God's not punishing anyone for their sin. Why? 
because God already punished Jesus as your sin. Some of you have grown up in a false theology thinking that when bad things happen, it's because you did something wrong and God is punishing you. And then you'll say, well, God chastens those that he loves. Yeah, he disciplines people for a future event. That's what chastening means. I got off the bus at MCRD, stood on yellow footprints at the Marine Corps, and immediately started getting yelled at, and immediately started doing push-ups, and was immediately beginning to be chastened. Had I done anything wrong? No. They were preparing me for something. Look, this is one of the most loving things I can possibly say to you. God is not punishing you for your sin. God already punished Jesus as your sin. But even in the Christian context, we, we kind of want to hear these things sometimes. We want to hear that God's going to go punish those people or going to punish the evildoers in the church. We have itching ears, so we heap up some of these theologies and these teachers. And remember, some of the most popular teachers are not faithful preachers. It says that they will heap up for themselves teachers. Remember, some of the most popular teachers are not faithful preachers. It doesn't mean that every popular teacher is unfaithful. There are faithful preachers that have gained popularity. But it also doesn't mean that a teacher who is, fa- is faithful just because he's popular. You need to be, people say, well, God's clearly doing something big at that church because they have a ton of people. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Just because a, pe- a preacher is popular does not mean that he's faithful. And it says, in response to this, as we heap up teachers, they will turn their ears away from the truth. This is verse four, and be turned aside to fables. See, it's not that, that, that refusing to hear truth means you'll believe in nothing. It means that refusing to believe truth means generally you'll believe anything else. And this is where I'll preface the next series. The next series is, is, is a departure from our, our kind of our standard um, groove, if you will, in a good way. It's going to shake Zach and me up. It's going to shake you guys up. And it's going to equip you like crazy. It's going to equip you like crazy. Because what it's going to do is it's going to very systematically show you how our general worldview, our general lens, our general framework for how we process concepts in this America, in, in this country, in America. Has, he's, we're going to systematically go through how this is a clear truth and we have moved away from it to believe false fables. I'm telling you. It's, we'll talk about it at the end. Zach will give an announcement tell you what it is. But even without, dare I say, even without the Bible, even without the Bible, can you defend absolute truth without even using the Bible? Can you, de- can, can you defend the concept of God without even having to use the Bible? By simply using languages of philosophy, logic, apologetics even. You'll, you'll see. Because increasingly, Paul is telling Timothy, look, then, today... People are going to be turning away from the truth, turning away from sound doctrine, and just wanting to hear fables about God, wanting to hear false testimonies about God because we have itching ears and they just simply need to be scratched. And so it says this is going to happen. Christian, don't freak out when this happens. He says, remain loyal in faith because people will be, though people will be turned away from fables, verse five, it says, but you... Be watchful in all things. And as pastors, we're called to be watchful. As congregants, you're called to be watchful and bring things to us. It says, be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill, listen to this, your ministry. Notice what it did not say. Fulfill Mark's ministry. Fulfill Zach's ministry. Fulfill Dave Plumley's ministry. Fulfill Pastor Brett's ministry. Fulfill your ministry. Now, in order to fulfill your ministry, what do you need to have? A ministry. No one claps for that. No, do I have to do stuff? Fulfill your ministry. Are you fulfilling your ministry? Let's back up. 
Listen to me very carefully. Do you have a ministry? If I could call one person right now and confirm your ministry, could you give me their number? Would they give me evidence of, of your ministry in their life, in your circle of friends' lives, in your family's lives, in your business life, in your hobby life, in your politics life? Do you have a ministry? As we learned in part two, everyone has a gift, everyone has a ministry. It's just whether or not they're using it. I would challenge you to think about that tonight. What is your ministry. Do the work of an evangelist. How does that play out? I don't know everyone's individual situation. I don't know your job situation. I don't know if you work for the government, if you're private, if you're in school, if you're a senior, if you're a freshman, if you come from a Christian home, you come from a secular home, if you have friends that are Christians, if you don't. But right now, if I said, everyone, write down your ministry on a piece of paper and submit them to me. Could you do that? What is your ministry? How does that play out because we're loyal to a lot of things in this world we're loyal to a lot of things in this world being loyal in faith means fulfilling your ministry which assumes that you have one it assumes that you have one our job is not to take care of all the ministry our job is to equip you for your ministry you have questions about that please come up and talk to us don't make an immediate beeline for the food, as good as it is, or get your food and come back. Talk to Zach and I. Get our contact info. He works on a church staff. I work at a hyper-sales marketing business. We got the whole spectrum between us. You're like, oh, you guys can't help. I'm in a secular work world. I'm like, so am I tomorrow morning. Wherever you are on that spectrum, your full-time minister, your full-time secular driving sales for the man. We got you covered. Ask us where you fit in. Tell us a little bit about where you are, what your situation is. If we can lend any insight or just simply pray over that, that God would show you that. Fulfill your ministry. People are like, I want to preach. I want to teach. We're doing okay on that right now. Okay? We got a couple guys and we're raising up some more. Okay? So if you're like, I want to be a preacher. Maybe down the road it'll come up. Okay? But currently that's our ministry. We kind of got it on lock right now. What's your ministry? How are you fulfilling that ministry? Fulfill your ministry, he says. And he's imploring Timothy, who's on church staff. It's like, hey, your ministry. And it says this, verse 6, it says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. He's sitting, he's sitting in, in jail. Paul is saying, look, I'm already gone. A drink offering. It has both religious and secular connotations, to be honest, because for the Jews, that was part of the sacrifice. You could give a drink offering on the altar before God. And even for the Romans, at the end of their meal, they would pour out drink. It was like sort of like, you know, one for the homies, that sort of thing. And they would like, they would pour it out. The Romans would actually like pour it out at the end of the meal as, as kind of a final offering to the gods, lowercase g. Paul's saying, look, look, I'm already being poured out on this altar. He's like, they got my chopping block ready. They're just polishing it. I'm there. Paul's in heaven. He's still ministering, but he's like, oh, my heart's done, man. This is it. I'm not getting out of these bars. He's, he, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm already being poured out a drink offering, as a drink offering. At the time of my, and, and the time of my departure is at hand. He would be headed after this letter. This is very, very likely, virtually all scholars agree, this is the last letter based on this text he wrote before he walked up and had his head lopped off. He says, I have fought the good fight. Here's the thing. Some of you aren't even fighting. You're coasting. You're coasting. Very likely, Timothy was coasting in his faith. He's on staff, and Paul's like, hey, do the work of an evangelist. Timothy's like, what? I'm on staff. That's all I need to do. It's like, you missed it. Some of you aren't even fighting. Why is there so much war language in the New Testament? Why is there this constant analogy to the fight, to the armor of God, to the, the commander of God's army? This is a fight. If you don't see the fight, how can you get in it? There is a war going on. It's not one of flesh and blood. It's one of powers and principalities. And I'm telling you, the next series is going to equip you in, in, in one very specific, very keen way to get in that fight. 
to ask simple questions, don't even reference the Bible on the battlefield with people. They could just say the whole Bible. I don't even want to talk about anything in the Bible. And you can still come. You can still come. You can still engage. Look, I was in Iraq. We, we said, hey, meet us on a battlefield at eight. Could you do that? And the terrorists are like, no. I'm like, all right, then we'll go where you are. We'll go to door to door. That's fine. We don't know how to do it. We'll get the LAPD. I ran through an LAPD SWAT training. Like, fine. They won't meet us on the battlefield anymore. They won't wear uniforms, tell us where they are, when they're going to be there so we can fight like men. Fine. I'll go kick in the door. People are like, nope, I'm not going to meet you at the Bible. I'm not going to talk about text. Don't even bring up God or Jesus. Okay. What do you do then? How do you fight? I'm telling you, the next series is going to give you that. He says, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Is he saying this to boast himself up? No way. He's saying this to encourage Timothy. I've kept the faith. Do the same thing. So as your pastor, I'm here to say, look, I am keeping the faith. Join me in it. Zach, come, come up and employ. Look, we're keeping the faith. Join us in it. We're trudging through this. We still have hard times. We, we still have tough meetings. We still have elder issues. We still have Mark spouting off things that he shouldn't and, and getting reprimanded by a senior pastor, which is very appropriate. There is still, look, there is still, there's still going to be issues. But get in the fight. Get in the fight with us. We're keeping the faith. We're working through this as a family, as a church, moving through history to point to Jesus who's coming back. Stop hopping churches. Settle down. Even if it's not this one, find a good Jesus-centered, Bible-preaching, mission-oriented church and settle down and deal with the mess. Seriously, deal with the mess. Stop looking for the polished nonsense. Why you're hopping churches every six months. Because you find out that real people exist in church. Right? It's, it's crazy. There's hypocrites in the church. Join the team. You are too. Love you too much to not tell you that. Settle down. Get in the fight. Pick a team. Pick a service. Get on the field. Like I made the team. You're probably just sitting on the bench. Okay? Get in the fight. He's saying, look, I've kept the faith. And he's imploring Timothy, keep it with me. Jesus is coming. Look, I'm gone. My heart's gone. I'm in heaven. They got my chopping block ready. Timothy, stay in the fight. Keep the faith. He says, finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you love that Jesus showed up? Does that just get you? I love that Jesus just said, I need to go down there and fix this, Dad. This is crazy. They sent, they're, they're not going to be able to fix this on there. I'm in. Where's my horse? Right? I love that Jesus showed up. Nothing else would have solved it. Israel couldn't solve it. The Gentiles couldn't solve it. Jesus had to solve it. I love that Jesus appeared. God himself, who's all throughout the Old Testament, he was always there, but I love that he just came into the mess. I love it. But notice Paul. He says, finally, there is laid up for me. He wasn't wondering some of you are wondering if there's a crown of righteousness for you in heaven. If you are in Christ, get over it. There is. There is a crown of righteousness waiting for you. People are like, what's the end game? I'm just going to preach to friends. They may or may not come to Jesus. You're headed for the crown. Check this out. There's, there's two words in the New Testament used for crown. One is for royalty and one is for victor. This is, he's speaking of the victory. He's saying, look, I ran the race. There's a crown waiting for me, a trophy. I played by the rules. I was in the fight. I was far from perfect, but I made it. And he says, I got a trophy waiting for me. And the word for trophy is Stephanos, where we get the name Stephen. And Paul stood there and they dropped their cloths. They dropped their clothes. And he said, the Christian Stephen, go for it. And they murdered Stephen. And Paul said, you have my blessing. Go for it. 
And then Jesus changed everything. He went from murdering Stephen to knowing he has a Stephanos waiting for him in heaven. Jesus does not care about your past. Jesus does not care about your past. He has a crown of righteousness waiting for you. That has to excite you. It has to motivate you. It has to be what powers you to remain loyal in the faith. It's not about what you've done. It's about what Jesus is calling you to do. He says, preach the word. Preach the gospel to your friends that you were created by Jesus for his glory. That you sinned. You're a Christian, but you're not perfect. So Jesus came into your mess and he reconciled you to a holy God. It's the only reason you have any righteousness laid upon your account. And now I'm just simply trying to offer the restoration to the world that Jesus offered me. He's healing me. I'm not perfect, but I'm healing. And you proclaim that word to people. You say, why? Because my commander's coming and he's got a crown for me. It's a trophy and I can't wait to see him. I love that he came into his mess and it's all I can possibly do to show my gratitude is to be loyal in the faith which saves me. And listen listen to me very carefully on this. He says, finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge, and Jesus will be the one that's judging. He received the judgment, therefore he can dole it out. Will give me on that day, it's a capital D in your Bible for a reason. It's gonna be an event like the world's never seen. Commander of the Lord's army is gonna come and he's gonna go right back to the mountain that he ascended from. He's gonna break it in half. And in the biggest metaphor on the planet Earth, he's gonna say, I'm here to stay this time. On that day, By the way, Jesus leads from the front. He's not a general barking orders from the rear. The armies of heaven will be behind Jesus, not ahead of him. It says, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And then verse 17, I'll just read a little bit of it. It says, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me. That's where Paul gets his strength. If you're gonna go home tonight and try to muster up the strength to remain loyal in your faith, you're going to fail. I am going to fail. And when I do this, I constantly fail. Paul knows that the source of his strength is God himself. I don't know why on earth we're not talking to him more. But know this. Listen to me very carefully. I wanna draw a distinction. Because in a lot of our hearts, we start to go legalistic on this. We start to go in this way. We start to believe that we, when we remain loyal in our faith, we gain, father, we, we gain favor with God. Let me say that again. A lot of us begin to believe that when we remain loyal in faith, we gain favor with God. Let me draw that distinction, shove that to one side. We remain loyal in faith Because in Jesus, we have already gained favor with God. We do not remain loyal in faith to gain favor with God. We remain loyal in faith because in Christ, we already have it. The author and the finisher of our faith will strengthen you. As we learned in our study in Acts, this is not a new ministry The church, you, me, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the chosen generation, this is, we are tasked, we are charged, not with a new ministry, not the 2015 version of what Jesus started, but the continuation of Jesus's ministry by the Holy Spirit. Read Acts 1, 2, 3, and then just go through the whole book. We are the continuation of Jesus's ministry. We don't remain loyal in faith to gain favor with God. We remain loyal. We preach the word in season, out of season. We fulfill our ministry. We do the work of evangelists. We go out into the culture. 
Not to gain favor with God, but because in Jesus, we already have it. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I mean, sometimes I can't believe you gave us your ministry. It's almost tough to swallow because you did it perfectly, and we certainly don't. But that's part of the, the process that you want us to go through. As we continue to cling to you, to partake in your ministry, it's humbling, it's scary, but it's so edifying. To begin to see the world as you saw the world, to begin to engage the world as you engage the world, to begin to minister to the world as you minister to the world. Jesus, thank you for going ahead of us. Thank you that no one here has to look to me or Zach for the example of ministry or look to Pastor Brett for the example of how, how to engage culture or, or anyone else, but that we can look to you and see how it was done perfectly. Jesus, thank you for going before us, for showing us how to love the world, for showing us how to engage in the world, for showing us how to love Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would impress upon all our hearts, mine included, this renewing sense of the continuation of the ministry of Jesus and that we would be diligent to actually study the ministry of Jesus. That we would study the blueprint for perfection. Though we will not ever achieve it, we'll draw closer to you and the world will see you in it. So Jesus, be glorified. Jesus, we, we don't do this to gain favor. We do this as a response to the understanding that we have already gained favor and that you saved us and that that favor comes through you alone. We're simply excited to do your work, to do your ministry until you come back. Holy Spirit, empower everyone here tonight. Get us excited about this. Stir in the hearts of your people. Do the work that I could never do up here in hours. Holy Spirit, you can sink this into the hearts of the people. You can show them how to minister. You can show them their ministry. You can guide them in ways that I simply cannot. So Holy Spirit, take over. Jesus, I pray that this worship time is sweet to you. We can't wait to see you again, but before then, we'll be continuing steadfastly and firm in loyalty to the faith which saves us in you. Jesus, be glorified. This is for your name, for your fame. Amen. We have communion. And it's simply, Jesus says, a remembrance of what he's done. The reason you have favor with God, the reason God sees you with favor is because of what Christ did on the cross. When he took all of your sin, everything you've thought, said, and done, against God was literally and metaphorically put on Jesus. Your sin and my sin was put on Jesus. God poured out his wrath on Jesus. You weren't saved because Jesus died on the cross. You were saved because God's wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross. Many men had died on crosses and many would do it again. God's wrath was poured out and fulfilled on Jesus. And so we remember what he did. We remember why we have favor with God. It's all about Jesus. Amen? Let's worship.